welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Happy Labor Day weekend, everyone. In celebration, I've decided to labor. Five compelling cases, including some goodies, and some nevertheless interesting not-so-goodies. Also, to all you full-on nerds out there, my recent case law research shows that the Federal Reporter, where all these published circuit cases are compiled, is now on the fourth edition. That is, instead of citing to the Fed third, we're now citing to the Fed fourth. I feel like we've been on the Fed third for like 35 years, or for a third of Ira Kurzban's career. So that's a big deal, everyone. I don't know if it's just because it's new, but I don't like how Fed Forth looks. It's not crisp. And Liz Montano agrees. To be readdressed in 30 years. On to the cases. Let's start off with the Third Circuit. We don't do that often. First is Singh v. Attorney General of the U.S., published on August 31st, 2021. This is the first of two big ones from the Third Circuit this week, and this one's quite a long one on aggravated felonies and denaturalization. But never fear, I've shortened it down. Mr. Singh is from India, became a lawful permanent resident in 1998 through his marriage to a U.S. citizen, and became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 2006. But he had some problems. First off, he had previously used a different false name to enter the U.S. and was ordered removed in absentia in 92 with that name. He used his true name to adjust and to naturalize, thereby hiding the fact that an immigration judge had ordered him removed all those years ago. That's bad enough, but also in 2011, he pled guilty to conspiracy to distribute and possess with the intent to distribute heroin, MDMA, and marijuana for conduct that occurred from September 2007 to November 2008, after he naturalized. Federal prosecutors, seemingly with the Trump Sessions Denaturalization Task Force, filed an action in federal court under 8 U.S.C. § 1451A to denaturalize Mr. Singh, 
listing two independent reasons for why his citizenship should be revoked, both seemingly related to that false name thing. First, he allegedly illegally procured naturalization because he was never lawfully admitted for permanent residence. And second, according to prosecutors, he procured naturalization by concealment of a material fact or willful misrepresentation. Pretty much the two charges that are always brought in denaturalization. A federal judge in New Jersey denaturalized him on January 5, 2018. Now, back to being an LPR, DHS initiated removal proceedings, and as relevant here, charged Mr. Singh as removable by alleging that his conviction was a drug trafficking aggravated felony and a conspiracy to commit a drug trafficking aggravated felony, making him removable for two aggravated felony reasons. Mr. Singh argued that he couldn't be removable for this conviction because he was a U.S. citizen at the time of the conviction. Love this stuff. The IJ rejected the argument and ordered him removed, and the BIA affirmed. But not the Third Circuit, in a very complex analysis. But essentially the gist is this. The aggravated felony removal provision at INA Section 237A2AIII only applies to, quote, any alien who is convicted of an aggravated felony, end quote. The argument is that Mr. Singh wasn't an alien at the time of the conviction. He was a citizen. So by the plain text, the removability provision can't apply. In so arguing, Mr. Singh relied heavily upon the Supreme Court's 1964 decision in Costello v. INS, which the 11th Circuit also recently analyzed favorably for the non-citizen in Hilton v. U.S. Attorney General, discussed on episode 49 of the podcast. The Third Circuit read Costello as governing the inquiry, notwithstanding the fact that the immigration statutes have changed a bit since 1964. But what remains the same is for the aggravated felony removal provision to apply, the individual must be a, quote, alien, end quote, at the time of the relevant action. Here, conviction. So that's the holding, but the analysis is more complicated and it's a bit important. The Supreme Court in Costello expressly stated that the issue was ambiguous all those years ago. No big deal back then, but 20 years later, the Supreme Court published Chevron and then later Brand X, and under those decisions and today, circuits must defer to the BIA and other federal agencies' reasonable interpretations of ambiguous statutes. And lo and behold, the BIA has twice held that individuals like Mr. Singh are removable, including in its 1966 decision Matter of Rossi and its 2008 decision Matter of Gonzalez Muro. The Third Circuit doesn't like that at all. Quote, To utter the word ambiguous today is to shift authority for statutory interpretation from the judicial to the executive branch, which makes for quite a large footnote to Marbury versus Madison. End quote. Nerds. All of us. Indeed, the Third Circuit doesn't think that the statute is ambiguous at all. But it's kind of boxed in by Costello's finding of a similar statute ambiguous 60 years ago. Now, the 11th Circuit, quote, found its way out, end quote, of this issue in Hilton by holding essentially that pre-Chevron ambiguous findings don't necessarily bind courts today. But the Third Circuit isn't so sure about that, and instead decided to assume, without deciding that it might be bound by pre-Chevron ambiguity decisions, that at Chevron Step 2, the BIA's decision in Rossi and gonzalez Murrow were unreasonable and arbitrary because they didn't sufficiently grapple with Costello. Plus, Gonzalez-Murrow isn't directly on point on cases like Mr. Singh's. 
The Third Circuit reached the same conclusion as the Eleventh, it just got there differently. So Mr. Singh isn't removable because his convictions occurred when he was a citizen. A decision where use of the word, quote, alien, end quote, actually does wonders for the non-citizen. Congratulations John P. Lashek and Jatari Grugate for petitioners. Based on the many arguments disposed of or punted in footnotes and not even discussed in this summary, it appears that you guys made quite the case and quite the argument. Two more things. The Third Circuit expresses confusion in a footnote as to why the U.S. government didn't pursue an INA Section 237A2B charge of removability, applicable to, quote, any alien who at any time after admission has been convicted of a violation, end quote, of a law relating to a controlled substance. Now, true, that statute is slightly different than the aggravated felony removal provision in that it has the, quote, at any time after admission, end quote, language but it still seems tethered to the word alien, like the aggravated felony provision. So very arguably, because it's just me here, the same rationale as used in this decision should apply. To be continued. And lastly, in a two-page single-space footnote, and there are many footnotes in this one, the Third Circuit agrees with matter of Kiantan that a procedurally regular entry into the U.S., that is, inspection and being led in by an immigration officer, qualifies as being admitted for INA Section 245A adjustment purposes, regardless of whether, like Mr. Singh, you accomplish that entry through fraudulent means. And that is Singh, the Attorney General of the U.S. Next up is B.C. v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on September 1st, 2021. Big Asylum Credibility from the Third Circuit Mr. B.C., an asylum seeker from Cameroon who the court allowed to use a pseudonym, was found adversely credible by an I.J. due to inconsistencies between his in-court testimony and various other statements made as he traveled, pro se, without an attorney and without an interpreter, through the U.S. immigration system. But here's the thing. Mr. B.C. speaks what's known as Pidgin English and has great difficulty understanding the standard English used in the United States. The Third Circuit then held that, quote, B.C. was denied due process because the I.J. did not conduct an adequate initial evaluation of whether an interpreter was needed and took no action even after the language barrier became apparent, end quote. Here's more as to why. As the Third Circuit explained, Cameroonian Pidgin English is a lot different than regular English. The Third Circuit gave this example. Standard English would say the sentence, quote, If it were me, I would not let him come and visit the children, end quote. While Pidgin English reads the same sentence as, quote, If na me, I no go gree, meek a kam, visit da pickin dem, end quote. So that's different. Mr. B.C. doesn't speak Standard English very well, but he does speak it. Like Ms. Munya in the Ninth Circuit decision last week, Mr. B.C. is from the Anglophone region of Cameroon and fears the Francophone Cameroonian government and security forces, as well as, quote, because he was a supporter of an opposition party called the Social Democratic Front, end quote, and the Southern Cameroonian National Council, known as the SCNC. Mr. B.C. claimed that the military detained him twice and shot and killed his brother at an SCNC demonstration 
leading him to flee to the U.S. in 2018. His first encounter with U.S. immigration officials was at the border with CBP. They seized his SCNC membership card and interviewed him without an interpreter. Same thing three weeks later at his Credible Fear interview. No interpreter, but he did his best in English. The Third Circuit then goes into details about his immigration court hearing before the IJ, but suffice it to say, Mr. B.C. was pro se, and he was never asked to quote, to identify in his own words the languages he speaks, or offered a Pidgin English interpreter, end quote. The IJ only provided the option of English, French, or Spanish. The IJ ultimately denied relief and protection based on asserted inconsistencies between the initial interviews and his in-court testimony, and additionally because Mr. B.C. had not corroborated his claims by failing to submit proof, for example, of his membership in the SCNC. Apparently, the IJ didn't know or did not recall that CBP had confiscated Mr. B.C.'s SCNC card. The BIA affirmed, and once Mr. B.C. finally got an attorney, and finally got that card back with the assistance of an attorney, denied his motion to reopen. The Third Circuit reversed, as I mentioned, based on a finding that Mr. B.C.'s Fifth Amendment due process rights were violated because his hearing wasn't fair. Quote, Due process requires IJs to determine whether a non-citizen has a sufficient level of proficiency in standard English to proceed without an interpreter. End quote. The IJ did not do so here, simply giving Mr. B.C. an either-or choice between an English hearing or another non-English interpreter. Plus, Mr. B.C.'s conduct at the merits hearing clearly indicated that he was having difficulty, as evidenced by the multiple notations of, quote, indiscernible, end quote, in the transcript, something all of us immigration attorneys are very familiar with. The IJ exacerbated this problem by interpreting the difficulty as indicative of credibility. All of this clearly prejudiced Mr. B.C., as required for due process violations. It led to misunderstandings and likely colored the IJ's adverse credibility finding. Plus, the IJ appeared to cherry-pick the record, not give credence to reasonable explanations, and ignored corroborating evidence. Plus that whole SCNC card thing. Case remanded. So EOIR, start looking for those Pidgin interpreters. Congratulations Sozie P. Tulante, Benjamin J. Hooper, Arthur N. Reed, and a bunch of amicus on the win. Here's some more great quotes for you. If you have similar issues in your appeal and you're trying to make a similar due process argument, here's your standard. Quote, it is the unusually large amount of indiscernible testimony, coupled with other readily apparent indicia of misunderstandings, that convince us there was a language barrier here. End quote. And here's a great quote generally for your adverse credibility appeals. Quote, the linguistic and cultural difficulties endemic in immigration hearings may frequently result in statements that appear to be inconsistent or unnatural, but in reality arise from a lack of proficiency in English or cultural differences, rather than attempts to deceive. End quote. Plus, for such people, especially pro se individuals, quote, it is easy to imagine that a person in that position might attempt to rehearse or memorize certain portions of his testimony. End quote. Save it for your briefs. And that is B.C., the Attorney General of the U.S. Next, 
is Rodriguez Ramirez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 1st, 2021. This is a short three-page procurium decision with a 13-page concurrence from Judge Van Dyke. Mr. Rodriguez Ramirez is from El Salvador and applied for asylum and related relief in immigration court, claiming to fear gang members. The IJ and the BIA denied, and the majority decision doesn't provide many details about his claim. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the BIA. First, it upheld the adverse credibility finding, holding that the BIA properly afforded, quote, substantial weight to inconsistencies that bear directly on his claim to persecution, end quote. Namely, the fact that Mr. Rodriguez Ramirez testified that he was threatened by gangs in February 2016, but the police report he submitted reflected a January 2016 date. Also, while he testified in court that the gang threatened him with a weapon, he didn't tell the prosecutor this in El Salvador or include it in his asylum application. While omissions are less probative of credibility than direct contradictions, this omission was directly applicable to Mr. Rodriguez Ramirez's case, and the added information about a weapon came out during direct examination, rather than on cross-examination. So apparently that makes it more indicative of adverse credibility, according to the panel. As Mr. Rodriguez Ramirez's application depended on his credibility, the Ninth Circuit affirmed the denial of all of it. Judge Van Dyke wrote in concurrence to highlight the, quote, extremely deferential standard of review, end quote, that the court should apply in such cases. And that is Rodriguez Ramirez v. Garland. Sticking with the ninth, we have Gia v. Garland, published on September 2nd, 2021. This case is about derivative citizenship. Mr. Gia was born in Peru to unmarried Peruvian parents. It appears actually that at the time of his birth, his mother may have technically still been married to a different Peruvian citizen, as there is no divorce certificate relating to his mother's first marriage. Mr. Gia claimed, however, that his parents, while never officially married, had a common-law marriage under Peruvian law. And common-law marriage does exist in Peru, at least at the time. Then, five years after Mr. Gia was born, in 1987, his mother disappeared and was never seen again. Citizenship cases can be wild. In 1990, when Mr. Gia was eight years old, his father was granted permission to take him and his siblings to the U.S., and they all entered his lawful permanent residence. Mr. Gia's father naturalized in 1999, when Mr. Gia was 17 years old. The stage is set. For what, you ask? For what always happens next in these cases. As a young adult, Mr. Gia got a couple of drug convictions and was placed in removal proceedings. In defense, he claimed that he derived U.S. citizenship in 1999, when his father naturalized, meaning that he can't be removed, because citizens aren't removable. The IJ and the BIA rejected this argument, but the Ninth Circuit thought that there was some meat to it on petition for review, and so sent it back to a district court judge, as it must. The federal district judge ruled against Mr. Gia on summary judgment, and here we are, back before the Ninth. And the Ninth Circuit ruled against Mr. Gia, and really, on a technicality. But derivative citizenship is all about technicalities. Under the citizenship law in effect in 1999, the applicable time because that's when Mr. Gia's dad naturalized, Mr. Gia should have derived citizenship because his father had custody of him and he was under 17 
and Mr. Gia was present in the U.S. as an LPR at the time. All of that is what's required to naturalize when your father derives U.S. citizenship. But unfortunately for Mr. Gia, the statute at the time also required, where derivative naturalization is based on the naturalization of an unmarried father, that Mr. Gia show that his parents had legally separated under Peruvian law at the time. And Mr. Gia might have actually been able to show that too, but he couldn't show that his parents were ever married in the first place. So how could they legally separate? So said the court. See, under Peruvian law, apparently, individuals already married can't form a common-law marriage. So to win, Mr. Gia had to show that his mother, who, remember, had been missing since 1987, divorced her first husband, remember, not Mr. Gia's father, before she began living with Mr. Gia's father as his common-law wife. This, Mr. Gia could not do because Peru has no record of the first divorce, and Mr. Gia has the burden of proof, so any ambiguity weighs against him. Mr. Gia showing that Peru's record system from the 1980s is unreliable doesn't cut it, because he has the burden. It's a catch-22. His parents couldn't separate because they were never married, but under the law in effect in 1999 in the U.S., to derive citizenship from an unwed father, Mr. Gia needed to show separation, which first requires marriage. Also, the court held that even assuming Mr. Gia's mother had divorced her first husband and that a common-law marriage with Mr. Gia's father had occurred, Mr. Gia could not show a sufficient legal separation under Peruvian law. This is because the only evidence he had were court orders authorizing his father to bring him to the U.S., but those Peruvian court orders were simply travel authorizations from a fill-in-the-blank Peruvian form, with a succinct authorization from a court. The orders say nothing about Mr. Gia's parents' marriage or termination. Just because his mother may have abandoned the home doesn't equate to a legal separation under Peruvian law, at least on this record, which lacks any expert opinion on Peruvian law. Mr. Gia, therefore, is not a citizen, is removable, and is subject to deportation. A bit more. I didn't get into it here, but if you have a citizenship case in the Ninth Circuit and are confused about burden shifting and what the burden precisely is, particularly combined with the summary judgment standard, let this decision be your guide, because it goes into it in depth. And oh by the way, and definitely check me on this, but citizenship law changed the next year, and I believe went into effect in 2001. So if all of this had happened to Mr. Gia a year or two later, or if Mr. Gia had just been a bit younger, I believe he'd likely be a citizen. But for the grace of Congress, go I. And that is Gia v. Garland. Finally, we have Gutierrez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on August 31st, 2021. This case is, quote, yet another immigration case involving the vicious international gang MS-13 and its brutalization of the people of Honduras, end quote. Judge Davis dissented. So it's a Honduran asylum and convention against torture case, and the majority denied protection. But you couldn't tell it from the opening paragraph. Quote, the record shows that, thanks in part to MS-13, Honduras has become one of the most violent countries on the planet that is not at war. In Honduras, gang beheadings and dismemberment of victims are now routine. 
lynching and burning victims alive are commonplace, and the recruitment of children as young as 11 is an everyday occurrence. Although the Honduran government has tried to combat MS-13, it still cannot guarantee a minimum level of security for all its citizens, end quote. Quite the country condition, citation, Fifth Circuit practitioners. Mr. Gutierrez resisted MS-13 recruitment in the town of Coloma. He also refused their tax, and police refused to help him. When he left town, MS-13 found him and where his daughter goes to school and threatened to murder them. Mr. Gutierrez tried to enter the U.S. in 2016 in terror, but he was returned to Honduras, apparently at the border or soon after. Upon his return in 2017, four gang members beat and stabbed him in a restaurant in broad daylight for his refusal to join the gang. Police did not come to help, and he woke up in the ER. The record contains, quote, gruesome, end quote, photos of the injuries. He and his family moved towns after recovering, but later that year, he and his wife were shot at while on motorcycles. Mr. Gutierrez was shot three times and his wife twice. They survived, incredibly. Again, photos in the record. Police said they couldn't help. The IJ and the BIA denied the relief and protection applications, and for reasons unexplained, only the Convention Against Torture denial made its way up to the Fifth Circuit. So everyone, the IJ, the BIA, and the Fifth Circuit, agree that Mr. Gutierrez will more likely than not be tortured or killed by MS-13 if returned to Honduras. And even oil wants to give him prosecutorial discretion, they said so at oral argument. But the agency, and now the Fifth Circuit, held that Mr. Gutierrez doesn't warrant protection because the murder that will more likely than not occur will not be by the Honduran government or with its acquiescence, consent, or willful blindness. That, under Convention Against Torture Law, means that Mr. Gutierrez loses. Harsh, harsh stuff. Now, Mr. Gutierrez argued that Honduran officials, quote, were willfully blind to his victimization by MS-13 because they either failed to investigate or refused to investigate the attacks against him, end quote. And willful blindness will cut it in the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit held that indeed, the evidence might show willful blindness. But the evidence does not compel that finding, and that is what's required on petition for review, at least in the Fifth Circuit, to overturn the BIA on a finding such as the government actor prong for cat protection. So Mr. Gutierrez lost. And even the Fifth Circuit suggested that ICE exercise its prosecutorial discretion and let him stay in the U.S. An imperfect solution to an imperfect immigration system, but at least it's a suggestion. Some observations. First, the Fifth Circuit made clear that for cat protection, the agency cannot simply focus on, quote, high-level officials and ignore lower-level officials, end quote. It must consider the actions of local officials as well in a case before it. The IJ and the BIA, however, did so in this case. And second, Judge Davis. He describes the majority and the BIA's decisions rooted in Mr. Gutierrez's failure to identify some of his attackers as, quote, a classic blame the victim excuse, end quote, and that the holding here makes Cat a, quote, dead letter, end quote, to most individuals in need. More central to the majority's decision, Judge Davis believes that the evidence does show that police in Honduras are corrupt in regards to MS-13, and quote, 
an officer who is corrupted by the torturer is effectively an aider and a better of the torturer, end quote. Citing that all day, even if it's in dissent. And that is Gutierrez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.